This episode has been brought to you in part by Canderell and Kingset Capital. Coming soon, affordable luxury condominium living at 908 St. Clair West. Nestled into a vibrant, one-of-a-kind neighborhood, 908 St. Clair West is a modern treasure, offering a sophisticated lifestyle inspired by St. Clair Village and prestigious Forest Hill. Register today at 908stclairwest.com. This is Bonjour Chai, the, wait, Whoopi Goldberg isn't Jewish edition? I'm Avi Fongold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we speak to Rabbi Anthony Knopf about the Jewish response to the Uyghur genocide and the truckers. Why are there so many Jews who seem to be siding with them? But first, Alana David, what a week. The capital is like... What a week. Essentially shut down by this trucker protest. The conservative party's in upheaval. Somehow there seems to be even more anti-Semitism in federal politics. But hey, I mean, like, I don't know, COVID numbers seem to be going in the right direction. Neil Young is fighting the good fight. So, you know, there's that. A lot going on. I want to know, has uh, is, is, is Melissa Lansman now uh, running for the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada? One can only hope. I wonder what her stance is on conversion therapy. I mean... I'm sure we know what her stance is on conversion therapy, but anyhow. Yeah, but as the leader of a party who seems to be very much fixated on that. Yeah. I know she was not very happy about the empty shelves in grocery stores because she posted about that, that, you know, the stores, the grocery stores across Canada were empty. And I went, I went to my Safeway down the street. It was full. There was fruit. There was apples and lemons everywhere. I saw a little scandalous thing about that online. I don't remember if it was on Twitter or Instagram, but someone really went after her and they were like, this was photoshopped. The real store looked like this and it was fully stocked. But anyway. Somebody fact-checked our, our dear Melissa. Well, that's what happens when, you, um, when you're in power. People speak truth to it. There you go. There is also, we, we have to talk about the Whoopi Goldberg incident because how could we not? It's all over everywhere. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean... What happened? Tell, tell, tell our listeners what happened with Whoopi this week. Oh, God. Well, as we talked about last week on the show, uh, the book, the graphic novel Mouse was taken out of school's curriculum. So they were talking about that on The View, where she's the host. And then she went about and started talking about how Holocaust education um, was not necessarily important because it was not about race. It was about two groups of white people fighting each other. And it's more about... Um, we need to learn more about how to be good people. Um, so that caused a lot of uproar. Um, when I was Googling it, all I was seeing was actually people are outraged, blah, 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 which is really interesting because usually when these things happen, nobody cares. Um, and uh, she actually did get suspended after her apology. I don't know. What do you like take about, what, what do you think about the apology? Do you feel it was genuine? What's your feelings on, on the whole situation? I think it was a really interesting thing in terms of her. It was kind of shocking for her to say, you know, Jews are not a race. It was about man's inhumanity towards man. It was about two white people killing each other. And you know what? It, I, I think the idea is I think a lot of people in Western society are quite confused by what is a Jew. They're like, are you folks just a religion? Are you an ethnicity? Are you a... Are you an ethno-religious cult? What's going on? I think there's a lot of confusion that they don't understand because it doesn't always fit into like mainstream Western society of what Jews are. My response every time everyone asks me is, what is a Jew? I'm like, it's a family. It's a family you disagree with. It's a family you can join. It's a family you leave. But it doesn't always fit into this nice, tight little box sure. of what other categories are. But the problem is more that 
whether you see Jew, like being Jewish as a race, which most Jews don't, that's how the Nazis saw it. And that's what the Holocaust was all about. So to deny that it wasn't a racial thing is basically dismissing what happened. And I think that was the biggest thing. Apparently, I agree with Whoopi Goldberg about the state of Holocaust education, but everything else, like, <laughs> I, I think that... Pl- On that note. <laughs> the point where she was misguided, if you ask me, is the idea of, like, thinking about various races in Western Europe at the time, right? And how you don't see a lot of Black people in Europe. And so, you know, you tend to, or or Latino or or you know, any or, or brown folk or people of color, any other people of color, right? That's not how Western Europe was mainly, not to the exception of other, but was mainly comprised. And therefore, you don't see um, Hitler really ca- contra those people, even though Hitler was against Jews as a race. Hitler was against Roma as a race. Hitler was against other people as a race. Um, and again, like what you just said, Alana, regardless of whether you think that you are part of a race or not, um, the Nazi party very much saw Jews as a race, and therefore it is race-based, whether fallacious or not. Um, but um, maybe maybe we really need to rethink the state of Holocaust education um, in uh, in our schools. On that note, um, no. Yeah. <laughs> on that note, we actually we got a, a response from a listener uh, that we will share with you. Yes. So it was coming in from Bell Jaranuski. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correct. The executive director of the Jewish Heritage Center of Western Canada. And I'll, maybe I'll just read a little bit of an excerpt from her letter. So she wrote. With respect, I do not think your panelists understand why teaching about the Holocaust is so important, and I would say is rather uninformed on the subject. Learning about this watershed event in history is teaching about human rights and genocide prevention. Students who have heard a survivor's story is forever changed. We also know that students who have received Holocaust education are less likely to become radicalized and are more resilient to online conspiracy theories. I don't disagree with anything that she just said. I think the only point that I was trying to make last week was that it's not that Holocaust education isn't important. It's that there are so many important things that have to be learned. Um, And at some point, we have to be able to make choices about that um, and what those are. And I'm still, you know, despite, and, and that's just one example, we have gotten other responses about this, and most of them were very similar. Um, the, the, the fact is that I'm not sure that ultimately we, this is one of those things that needs to be taught at, if it's going to come at the expense of learning something else. Um, and, and I think that's all dependent on what it is. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that I think wasn't clear when I was talking about this last week was that this was not about Jewish schools, right? This was about um, the general school population and public schools and, and, and non-Jewish private schools. Um, I think the Holocaust should be taught uh, on a regular basis in the Jewish day schools um, to a certain, to, to a large extent. Um, but maybe we have to really um, ask ourselves what is going to, you know, happen in terms of public schools. And then that's a very different situation. But yeah. See, I, I, I told my mother-in-law last night about my opinion from last week. And you know what? She, she said, shame on you, David. Shame on you. She called me out for Chinese New Year last night while we were eating cookies and everything like that. And she, and she even hit me. And she said, how dare you? She said, this was a seminal moment in history, not just for the Jewish people, but for society as a large. And we should be making it mandatory, according to her. I was giving my opinion where I disagreed with that. And she was bringing it from her perspective, sort of saying that by learning about this, it opened her doors and her world to something so much bigger than her background. And it really did shape a perspective 
on where we as a society should say, sort of say, this is terrible, this is horrific, and we need to learn from this specific moment in history. Again, I don't disagree. I'm just curious about the timing because there is so little to learn, so much to learn in, in schools and so little time to do it um, that maybe at the age of 13, 14, 15, there, uh, there might be other important things. I'm not a school administrator. I'm not a curriculum expert, but, you know, that's about it. Anyways, this does tie into um, what we are going to be talking about next or what I'm going to be talking about next. Um, I don't know if you know this, but I have this other podcast. Uh, I've mentioned it before. It's called Hyphen. Uh, my co-host on that one is uh, Stephen Backhouse, who happens to be an erudite and wickedly funny Anglican theologian. Uh, one of his areas of expertise happens to be Christian nationalism and how religion and politics mix in modern-day America. Stephen happens to have his own podcast called uh, Tent Talks, right? It's based on his idea behind t- uh, that he calls Tent Theology. And I happen to be on his podcast uh, with his colleagues, uh, Sean McCoy and Chris Marchand, uh, a couple days ago. And the topic came around to the trucker protest. And I have been both fascinated and perplexed by the amount of Jews, especially Haredi Jews, that seem to support the protest and the movement in general. So what you're about to hear is an extended segment from the Tentheology podcast, and you can hear the entire podcast episode by clicking on the link in the show notes. I'm going to ask you how far your understanding of Christian nationalism is going to extend to Judaism by sort of like using this right. example. And I think this is fascinating, right? right. Um, I don't know how many of you have heard of this, uh, this whole truckers convoy and protest oh, yeah. that's been going on in Canada. Yeah. I- I'm interested. I don't, I don't know enough about what that's about. It's something that has to do with freedoms, <laughs> liberties. <laughs> All right. Abby's uh, the Canadian. You, you're the Canadian so who's actually ex- living there still. You tell I'll us. give it to you in extremely <laughs> yes, brief terms. It started with this idea that pro- um, there were truckers that were protesting a lot of these individual freedoms being restricted um, because of a vaccine mandate in Canada and that they were being required to be vaccinated, while completely ignoring the fact that, first of all, 90% of the truckers were vaccin- are, are vaccinated, and that even the ones that aren't, it wouldn't matter what the Canadian government does in terms of enforcing a vaccine mandate on Canadians, because the American government won't allow you to enter the, you know, America without a vaccine anyway. So it has really has nothing to do with Canada, but this became this larger um, discussion about religious liberty, about um, individual liberties, sorry, um, within Canada. And all these truckers went to Ottawa this past weekend and there was a lot of protests and inevitably because this is a very right-wing, um, you know, protest movement, there was a lot of swastikas, there was a lot of anti-Jewish sentiment. And, and you see a lot of conservative politicians that are squirming about like, well, I agree with what these people are saying, but I deplore the, you know, the swastikas and the anti-Semitism. And there's this attempt to like shift this discussion around there. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed that's interesting, and I'm actually struggling to understand this, and Stephen, maybe you can help me understand this, is um, you would otherwise imagine that religious people um, would not be so libertarian, right, about these types of individual freedoms. And yet the Jewish community has really thrown in their lot with a lot of these right-wing Christians um, who are Mm-hmm. very libertarian about their personal freedoms and how the government shouldn't be standing in the way. And religion is very much about communal responsibilities and not about personal freedoms, really like at its core. And yet religious libertarianism is is very much a thing. So I yeah. personally think that it is intimately entwined with Christian 
libertarian tendencies. And that's why I think, Stephen, you might have yeah. something to say about this. So why don't you fill in that piece, and then I will try to fill in the analog of what's going on in the Jewish community. How does that sound? <laughs> well, I am. I don't know much about the Canadian convoy. I know, I know what I've been researching and reading a little bit, but I do know Just that- in general about the nature of how religious people end up on the right-wing fringe, especially when it comes to libertarianism. Well, Christians do. I mean, I don't, you keep yeah, Christians, I, I said, if I, you can yeah. answer it as Christians, and then I want to see if we can come but to some sort of middle for what the Jews are doing there. This, again, it's very, it kind of has to do with the loss of civilization. So it's kind of, it comes back to that nationalism again, that Christian nationalism. So for Roman Catholic hyper-conservatives, sort of paleo-conservative movement in the Catholic world, it's kind of like, we had our civilization, we ran everything, and now we've lost it. The barbarians have taken over, and we want to have our civilization back. So they, Roman Catholic nationalism is very associated with kind of the loss of civilization. Evangelical Christian nationalism is also associated somewhat with the loss of civilization, but it was they're more looking back to not like, oh, well, we once ran the whole world as an empire. They're more thinking, oh, the world was once safe to raise your children. Like, Christian values were part of the, the common culture and, and you were family values were just part of what it was to be a human and a good citizen and a good patriot. And that, so they are identifying um, Christianity with a form of that kind of um, like everyone, just everyone to themselves. You don't need the state to look after you. Uh, a man, men were men and women were women and everybody knew their place. So it's, it isn't like kind of an empire sort of nostalgia. It's more nostalgia for like, small town everybody knows their place nobody needs the state to bail them out kind of idea right so it's very anti-socialist very anti-communist that's why that's why you disagree with an american conservative and instantly they'll call you a communist no matter what position you take and so they really identify with that kind of small uh small town freedom type stuff everybody's individualistic right so it's not communal at all in fact if you try and talk about the the community or the communal responsibilities that come with christianity they'll call you a, a socialist or a communist or something right away so that's but you know so that's so that's why the the right always the the, the real hardcore right and which by the way the what used to be that beyond the pale hardcore right is now becoming mainstream conservatism especially in the evangelical world so stuff that before, like the theory of the great replacement theory, you know, which, which used to be just this, you would never hear anybody say that before. And now you have Tucker Carlson talking about it on Fox News, which is the idea that white people are being replaced by immigrants. Um, and that's becoming normal, normal language now. Those kind of language, that, that, those kind of people who are fearful about that their world is being replaced, they're the ones who are agitating for this trucker convoy for example so pat king he's this uh canadian right-wing um activist he has he's on record you can go and hear him talking about the great replacement theory and he thinks that white people are being replaced um there's a guy, another guy i can't remember exactly his name his name justin lefoy not, i think not it trudeau. is trudeau no not trudeau <laughs> Uh, he was part of a, a fascist white nationalist group called the Sons of Odin. Lots of sort of Norse mythology mm -hmm. there, which is all about protecting uh, rustic rural white culture against this. I was going to say, and being as white as you can possibly be. Yeah, right. right. Being Nordic, right? And, and these are the people who, are, who have started and are the leaders of the convoy, for example. So whatever else has been bolted onto it, 
this was the beginning of it. And these are the people there. Uh, and they are often doing it in the, in the name of Christian nationalism. And they'll, but they'll say they're Christian, but you know, what they really are is, is some kind of European civilizationist or hearkening back to the lost glory days of civilization. So- one one yeah. follow up, and then I and then I have a lot. And of I want to ask before your follow up. <laughs> I just want to say I find it deeply weird, and I just, I, I my theory why Orthodox Jews in Canada are supporting the trucker convoy uh, is that it has something that I don't think they're paying attention to the great replacement theories that are being spouted by these people. I think that they are. I'm going to ask you this, Abby. Is it because Orthodox Jews have learned to be suspicious of the state, and so any movement that is against statewide so, mandates is, is a yes one. and 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 that's so so my quick follow-up is what is mm. the and then i'll, I'll really i'm going to answer all of it and i think sorry for for sean taking over this question oh, i love I it there's so much here um yes. the the question i have is the people that are really staunch individualist freedom type of people in the evangelical hard right or now the mainstream right how do yeah. they view community especially vis-a-vis church like who brings the potluck or do they just go and say, well, I don't care. I'm going to go home and I'm going to have my snack. And I, I, what's the, what is the sense of responsibility and how do you have, how do they deal with that disconnect between individual freedoms and communal responsibilities that they already see within their own small communities? I mean, that, that you talk about a long answer taken away. I, I would just say <laughs> that it, it, it is a, it is a very, as if I can say from a, from my viewpoint, relative to your question is that is the, that is the overwhelming um, rhythm of my life uh, growing up in the South and in the areas and the ways that I did is that understanding that massive commitment to your nation, massive commitment to your state. But at the same time, there's this socioeconomic paradox that you are up to, you are individually up to your own. Um, it's up to you. Like you don't have a community to rely on. You got to pull yourself up and take care of business and you have to succeed individually. And it almost becomes this weird systemic um, the, the people that really matter, who brings the, the co- who brings the cookies whoever like the whoever's whoever's uh, whoever can is really what it, but so it's it, tribal though abby like they yeah, so the, very church, the church so i have a communal south but they won't i have a communal responsibility to my church but they wouldn't ever that. use the word communal by the way communal yeah. is yeah. like a hot okay. button word but so yeah. they have a they, they, they'll take care of people who are kind of in their group already but they won't yeah they won't have like so, a an idea that they are. So this answers a lot, actually, and this is my this is where I'll go with it. I think um, when you start the you know the great replacement theory is mm. something that Jews, you're right, do not like think about because we are always the ones being replaced, right? We're always on the other side of that, so it's it's hard for you know the Jew Jewish community to think about wrapping their head around that one. Um, and I am bracketing Zionism here. I, we are not talking about that because, because it gets way more complicated with when you bring in Zionism and the state of Israel. Um, what I seem to see happening um, with the trucker convoy and the recent move towards the right within the ultra-Orthodox community, because we see, you don't see this in more liberal Jewish communities, right. is that um, exactly the same things that you were talking about, this return to values, the idea that our values are being taken away from us, that men are supposed to be men and women are supposed to be women, and abortion is supposed to be legal and homosexuality is supposed to be a sin, and society is taking these things away, and the people that are telling me that we are here to bring those things back are the conservative mm-hmm. Christians that are, that are asking for that type of um, life to return. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are all things, right? The, the big push in um, orthodoxy these days is for women to become clergy or not. My wife is an, is, is, or is an orthodox woman and she is ordained, but there are a lot of people that have a very great amount of difficulty with this because it flies in the face of what they were taught their mm-hmm. whole lives that men are rabbis and women are not. 
the the family as a unit, all of these issues and discussions are huge in the imagination of the Jewish community, however small they are. Um, and that is where that locus is. There's this push towards saying, well, we want to associate with the people that are asking for the same things that we are asking for, because those things are so big within our community, the, the family values and the small town life, which they is huge in their imagination is just a small town life, let's say in Eastern Europe. Um, and, and the, the fact that, that those small towns were responsible for themselves and the government had not, little to nothing to do with them other than that they would take taxes and they wouldn't give you anything back. Um, and so the communal imagination in that community seems to be yeah. going there. The only shift is, and it's not even a shift, it's exactly the way that you're answering it is, because I'm asking myself, these are people that are so community oriented. If you use the word community in Hebrew, or whatever it is, they're going to go and say that, yes, we are so community oriented. We believe in community, but they believe in their community. And they're not necessarily believing in, in giving right to other communities and that may even to expand to for a lot of people to other Jewish communities that are not Orthodox. And so the values in this case are aligning without looking at this big picture of this great replacement that, you know, that says that um, as much as they think that they're, um, you know, aligning themselves with this anti-abortion, anti-gay, positive men and, you know, old, old school men and women, um, they're not realizing that they're about to be, they're the first ones on the chopping block that are going to be replaced. That's what I yeah. think is going on here. And I don't I'm curious what you. Well, there's two. And also the all the all the conspiracy theory stuff that happens around here. So much of that is anti-Semitic as well, because it's you mm -hmm. know, the Jews are the ones who have put the uh, the vac the the microchip in the vaccine to control us. And, you know, it's so so a lot of these conspiracy theorists are also the same people doing the trucker convoy, for example. Do you think, Avi, that the, the ultra orthodox communities that we're talking about, do they know that it, there's lots of anti-Semitism and they're just overlooking it? Or do they it's, not even know? Have you seen the amount of swastikas that are around? Well, this is, what, uh, this is why I'm just, I'm just so, flabbergasted that you'd find so, ultra-Orthodox people who still align themselves with this group. So I haven't asked a lot of ultra-Orthodox people about this specifically, but what you'll see, for example, in the larger Jewish community. So um, there is a member of parliament, Melissa Lansman. She's actually a former you know, host of our, of our show, Bonjour Chai, and she's a conservative MP. And, um, you know, people were calling her up on this. Well, how could you support what they are doing when, you know, there is this idea of, you know, uh, you know, all these, all these swastikas, all this anti-Semitism that is there. She's like, well, I agree with what they are saying, but I deplore the anti-Semitism. Right. And there's this attempt to like shear the two to apart to sort of say, I believe that these values and you're here without necessarily thinking that those two are actually intertwined, They're that you really don't have the values of, you know, vaccine freedom and, um, you know, anti-homosexuality and, and, and positive women, uh, old school values of men and women and stuff like that without adding that anti-Semitism in there that the it has to go together in yeah. the way that the trucker convoy or the people that have started it are actually going well this is um, so in a lot that's of circles. what happens it's yeah. it's difficult to, to see and we're rationalists and we see it but i'm you know people bifurcate things all the time what happens when you show yeah. up at a pizza shop and there's no actual you know child pedophile ring there uh, you don't your your ideas don't just die you just shift and you you have to keep your narrative alive
what, what, David, what, what is the vibe like in Calgary these days? You know what, I'm sure the, the vibe is kind of similar, but like these are a lot where the truckers originated from Vancouver area and here in Calgary as well too. But I think what I'm seeing for the first time ever is people on my Facebook feed are coming out of the woodwork now that had never expressed any of these type of sentiments before and are now really excitedly posting about supporting the trucker movement, supporting the freedom convoy. Finally, people are standing up for everything. And that's what was surprising to me. People who remained silent for two years on whether they're vaxxed or unvaxxed, support, you know, mandates or not. This is the first time I'm seeing people very happily talk about these things more publicly than ever before. So there is a feeling now that they feel egged on by it or, or the gatherings or the demonstrations that have occurred even here in Calgary with supporting the truckers. It's reaching a fever pitch, I think. But this is online. Like, there's no hundreds of truckers lining the streets in Calgary now. It's all centered on Ottawa. There's a bit in Quebec City now. Well, it started here and what's happening down at the border in Coots. I don't know if any of you have been following that. But right now, a bunch of truckers have have blocked access to the U.S. border uh, with the Alberta border as well, too. So food cannot be delivered anymore. The RCMP is sort of holding off and just trying to manage the situation. They're not forcing anyone off of it, but they've effectively shut down one of the international crossings here. And that's pissing off a lot of people. It's pissing off the people of Coots, the city itself. Are they preventing kosher food from making its way from America into Alberta? Right, because if there wasn't the, the the amount of you know swastikas and Jewish stars, then that alone brands them as anti-Semites in my book. You know what I'm, I'm I I cannot for say for certain whether kosher food is being impeded at all. I can tell you that uh, American food is being impeded. So they're, maybe they're more anti-American than anything. What do you do on Chinese New Year? I mean, do you do you go to a Jewish deli? <laughs> <laughs> The Olympics are upon us, and aside from the extreme bubble conditions within the Olympic Village in Beijing, the other major story of these games also seems to be non-sport related. The various boycotts that different countries seem to be employing to bring attention to the terrible situation that the Uyghur population is being subjected to by the Chinese government. For many, this is not just a general humanitarian crisis, but also a deeply Jewish issue. To unpack this, we are joined by Rabbi Anthony Knopf, who is the rabbi of the Beth Ora Congregation in Montreal, Quebec. Rabbi Anthony... Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So if you can give us a bit of background, just um, what made you, before we get to the deeply Jewish involvement in this, uh, what made you get involved uh, in the Uyghur cause as a uh, pulpit rabbi in Montreal? Well, some of that will be relevant later when we talk to the general Jewish issue, because obviously it speaks to how I am moved by this as a Jew. Um, more specifically, um, I, one thing which I think I did notice, I'm still, uh, you may notice that my accent is not Canadian, I'm from England, and I'm still quite connected to the Jewish community in England, and I saw the tremendous work that they are doing politically, through the media, through youth activism in so many ways. And I was very proud uh, as a Jew, as, as a Brit, to see that being done. And I looked around and did not see it being done in the same way at all in the Montreal community. There is certainly uh, there's certainly meaningful activity. We have the Wallenberg Center here, for example. But I didn't see that the Jewish community was really getting involved here. And I felt, well, they, they, they need to. I mean, this is something which is which is an atrocity. It's a genocide. There are chilling parallels with the Holocaust. It is not the Holocaust. We don't say it's the Holocaust, but there are chilling parallels. And we we are pushed to the questions which we ask of those of previous generations who stood by and did nothing. 
And can we stand by and do nothing? And it's part of my general belief in the power of community as well. What communities can do when they come together and work together, not just individuals, but communities can be so powerful and can make a difference. And I wanted our Montreal Jewish community to make that difference. Amazing. And so how did you go about doing that? You started a lot of initiatives. So can you tell us a bit about them? Um, Well, I think the first thing that I did was I worked together with uh, Dorothy Zuckman Howard, uh, who was... It was associated with previously the president of the Montreal Holocaust Museum and other people at the museum to create a community webinar, which was joint with various communal bodies, including Hillel and, and Sija and the Montreal Board of Rabbis and others, where we had a number of speakers, Uyghur, prominent Uyghur speakers, um, Professor Erwin Cutler. Uh, we had a Holocaust survivor, so a number of people, uh, also um, representatives from the British Jewish community, speaking about this issue and really raising the awareness. And that was really the first step. Um, we needed an education. We needed to spread that awareness, to put it on the agenda. Um, various uh, people who were there went off and did some work in in different areas, having been uh, stimulated by that. But by and large, I didn't necessarily see the way through in an obvious way until I decided that really youth was the place to start. And so I'm working at the moment with two groups of people. One is in the context of the schools, the Jewish schools of Montreal, uh, high schools, and the other is in the context of university campus. And there are a few, there are, there's the group in each category who are working on developing the awareness, the education, and then following on from the education, there'll be activism. And the youth of the Jewish community will lead in this area. Um Every, people of all ages should get involved, but that is in terms of the, the work that I've been doing in the place where I have started. Now, you mentioned earlier that maybe you were finding a hard time for the to find interest in the Jewish community in Montreal comparing to the British Jewish community. Do you have any ideas why that might be the case? Um, well, the way that I, that I would put it is that I just didn't, didn't observe that people were involved in it here. It isn't like there was an experience that I was asking and not finding interest because I did find um, interest when I reached out. But uh, I think that there is less of a tendency for the community to look beyond its doorstep in Montreal. I'm sure there's lots of meaningful activities, some of which I'm aware of, of a lot which I'm not uh, aware of. But I think in general, that community... Uh, looks outwards less than it does in England, possibly because of the 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 numbers of the community in England allow it to do so. But it may also be to, something to do with the structure of the various organisations that exist there. Um, there are prominent interfaith organisations. There is a chief rabbinate which involves you know the chief rabbi representing the Jewish community, but also that involves a lot of connections he will have with other faith groups. There is a uh, René Kassar, human Jewish human rights organization in England. And there's the Board of Deputies, which as a political body representing the Jewish community in England is very much focused on, on bridge building. And, and within that context, there is controversy in England. Some say you need to be more insular. And of course, a great deal of their, fi- of their work is fighting anti-Semitism and other issues. But I, so I think it's, it, there's a bunch of factors. But I have found as a rabbi who's been living here now for five and a half years that there isn't that much looking outwards in my experience and, and, and fighting on, the, on behalf of the rights of other groups beyond our community. 
So you mentioned that you're working with students to try to build resources and do education. For our listeners, where could one find more material or research if one wants to participate and and fight the fight alongside you? There are a number of schools, uh, specifically Bialik, um, Herzliya, Maimonides, and Hebrew Academy, which are all working uh, on this. There are, they have they have teachers representing, uh, you know, working on this issue and who are developing um, curricular programming, who are in touch with each other. So if you're in one of those schools and in grade 10 or 11 you should certainly be hearing about this in in due course and and the and the plan is that eventually that will lead to some activism maybe coming together whether virtually if we have to or in person to actually um to actually do some activism relating to the issue once the awareness has been raised um and it's expected that Dilla will be involved in that as well indeed we've already had um i, I spoke briefly and, and other people um spoke at a recent Dilla event about this on campus it's more nascent but we have certain students students who are working on it. Um, so I, I don't know if people will have a way of reaching me. If there are any students on any of the university campuses who do want, I don't know if this will be, this is, is a way of making this available for people to click on, but my email address is rabbinoff at yahoo.com, rabbi, K-N-O-P-F at yahoo.com. And I'd be very happy to connect you with the students who are there. I would say more broadly, um, people who are listening to this, what do we, what could we be doing? I think that that's, what I'm told is that MP, that writing to MPs is a very significant part of the activism that's being done. The MPs read the letters and they're taken seriously. Um, the, the Parliament, Canadian Parliament, has declared that the what's being perpetrated against the Uyghurs is a genocide. But nevertheless, the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board is investing over $50 billion of Canadians' pension funds in China. Um, so I have a, a contacts, uh, particularly in Vancouver, who, but who are working more broadly than that, who are working to, to fight against that. You know, you've declared it a genocide, and yet, yet you're investing the pension funds, Canadians' pension funds in that country. And so to write to your MP and to ask them to support legislation to prevent Canada or the Canadian Pension Plan Investment Board from investing in any country that the Canadian Parliament declares is perpetrating a genocide is a very valuable thing to do. The MPs, we've been told, are listening for the voices of their constituents on this on this issue. And this is a way in which you can make a difference. Other suggestions I've had have been involving uh, raising concerns over with your MP over Airbnbs or Coca-Cola's sponsorship of these Olympic Games. That we can have an Olympic Games in this country where a genocide is taking place with huge major sponsors and it's going ahead and, and it's really, it's a travesty and we must not allow this to happen with impunity, without huge protest uh, and outrage against what's happened. Um, finally, for, particularly for those who live in Ottawa, there is a um, an opening of the Olympics uh, in Ottawa, so to speak, which is outside the Chinese embassy, a special event which will be held this coming Friday outside the embassy from 12 noon to 12.30 p.m., uh, which will be there to draw attention to the Chinese government's brutal persecution. And there will be various presentations of awards for, for brutality and genocide and for speakers um, who have suffered at the hands of the Chinese. And it's not only Uyghurs who have, but other groups as well, of course. Um, and that will also be a way particularly if you are in Ottawa or able to get there, in which you can show your protest against this. So if I can get this on the record now, uh, that means, Rabbi Antoninoff, you are pro-boycott, divestment, and sanctions <laughs> um, as a movement, uh, but as long as it is against the, the Chinese population. Very right? good, yeah. <laughs> we could substantively engage with that. I don't think I mentioned a boycott 
<laughs> sections. But I, I am certainly pro attending this, um, this this protest at the Chinese embassy. But that doesn't mean I'm in, in favor of, of attending every single protest. Um, because, you know, embassy. Avi, he was making a joke, but he brought up because I, I don't want to be making a comparison but here. But isn't it a little bit hypocritical that we talk about protesting in front of the Chinese embassy, but then we do want to turn a blind eye to sort of what is happening in the West Bank, too? I'm worried that Aren't you thinking about that, that we're coming up for these protests and then people are going to say, hey, Jewish community, you're out here protesting against what China is doing to the Uyghurs, but you don't want to do anything when it comes to what's happening to the Palestinians. We have to do what's right. Um, so the, the the question with the Palestinians would be a different issue. Uh, there would also be a question as to, I mean, if someone actually said it in those words and, and so on, not, not as if someone attacked the Jewish community, one would have to deal with the way in which that was put across in its own right and whether yeah, every Jew is being expected to to uh, take responsibility. But that would depend on the way it was delivered. But everything with regard to the uh, the West Bank, every uh, everyone needs to make the appropriate decision. We may well make a decision that we need to do something about uh, about the West Bank. Then there will be the question is what is the most appropriate thing to do? I mean, the, the difficulty we have in relation to Israel is that there are plenty of people who would not lose a wink of sleep if Israel was destroyed tomorrow. Um, and so coming out of Holocaust Memorial Day, we absolutely do come out saying never again. And that cannot only mean never again to the Jews, but it certainly does also mean never again to the Jews and uh, people who conveniently uh, will be fine with with the uh, with the security vulnerabilities which would come with uh, with the withdrawal from the West Bank doesn't bother them anyway. So then they, they can they can indeed exploit and they can take advantage. And what we say in public, we need to be mindful of those who have those agendas. But um, I'm not personally of the view that says that therefore we shouldn't care in any way or try and do anything to improve the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank. I think that it is a very important value that we have. So what do we do practically is going to be the question from all that. But uh, that is not going to involve any kind of comparison with the West Bank and uh, with, with what Jews are doing in the West Bank and uh, and the Uyghurs. We need to take it on its own on its own issue and we need to work out how we as DAS, if we are diaspora Jews, what we can do to try to to support movements which are trying to improve the lives of Palestinians in the West Bank, we cannot allow what we are doing to be exploited by those who do not care about Israel's security. So you bring up an interesting point, and I can uh, easily ask this while bracketing um, uh, what's going on in some parts of the world vis-a-vis other parts of the world. Um, you, you talk about making these decisions about whether one can go forward and, and how one decides that this is something that I want to do as a, as a, as a rabbi um, within the community. What made you, right, and beyond the simple platitudes of tikkun olam, right? Because we don't, we're we're not big fans of the tikkun olamification of the world, um, of the Jewish world here on Bonjour Chai. David is particularly not a fan of it. Um, what is it that makes uh, that? What is your judgment um, lo- look like when you look at a cause and you say, oh? How is this a Jewish cause? How is this something that I want to get more involved in? Um, what is going on with, um, you know, the issue that makes you as a rabbi say, I need to get involved with this as a Jew? Yeah, so um, listen, there, there are so many important causes. And, um, you know, so I wouldn't say so a person who was getting involved and found a way of getting involved to help people in Yemen. I wouldn't say that this, this that's less of a Jewish cause than, than this cause. Um I, I, so when it comes to the specific choice of what to do, then that is that's an interesting question. And if you want to bring me back to it, I can try and address that. But 
the way I would the, the question which I'd like to address, I hope it's close to what you're asking, is well, in what way does this speak to me as a Jew? In what way is this a Jewish concern at all? What is it about Judaism or my relationship with Judaism which which actually sees a relevance and a, and a strong importance in in this cause? Or any similar kind of cause, not to make a distinction between this particular cause, but a cause in which, for example, a non-Jewish group um, is being persecuted and subjected to, to horrendous, horrendous atrocities, genocide. Um, and I think there are a number of things. I don't think I can mention all of them. And if I gave some more thought, I'd find more. But I think that there are three key ideas which which speak to me. One is the way in which we look at tragedy, our, our, own, our own history, our own history of persecution. On the one hand, yes, we've had a tremendous history of persecution, but then there's what you do with that. How do you, how do you emerge from experience of persecution as a people? Not every people does that in the same way. Not every approach to life warrants the same kind of emergence or response to a history of persecution. And we have a number of different uh, themes within our tradition, but one very famous one, because of course the archetypal biblical paradigm of our oppression was Egypt and coming out from Egypt, we find again and again the reiterated commandment to not oppress the stranger because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And there's a great discussion that can be had as to what are the precise halachic parameters of that commandment, which is an interesting discussion in itself. But the clear understanding of it is that that when you were in Egypt, you were vulnerable, you were foreign, you were not in a position which was strong enough to defend yourselves. Don't be oblivious to the suffering of other people help other people who are in that situation and what comes out from that and we see this in the jewish personality uh, even often with those who have who have perhaps in certain ways moved away from from judaism as a religion seem to have retained this very deep profound biblical um attitude to previous persecution which is i'm never going to let that happen to anyone else again and we come out from the holocaust and we say never again all the time and we have to ask what do we mean by never again we don't only mean that there should not be people like the nazis we mean also there should not be people like the rest of the world that could have done something but did nothing had so many opportunities to do something and didn't do anything it wasn't jewish lives weren't important enough and it's possible and and in the way in which we see what's happening. The the uh, IOC have the Olympic Games in Beijing while this genocide's coming along. There are those who are willing to turn a blind eye to what's happening. Can we do that? Is that the message that comes as Jews of that, that we go through this persecution and then we go out and we, we're oblivious to the suffering of others? I think there's something very deep within our tradition that doesn't allow that. I think a second very key theme is that Judaism's messianic age is not in the past. It's in the future. Our golden age is not in the past. We look towards the future. We have a messianic prophecy of a better world. That becomes fundamental to what it is to be a Jew, to look towards a world which is better than it is now. And so it's unbearable. It's it's unbearably painful, the dissonance between the world we want to see and a world in which people are being treated, in, put into concentration camps, sterilized, raped, tortured in our world. And number three, very importantly, going together with that is the profound Jewish idea that we are in partnership with God. There are faiths which emphasize the importance of gaining salvation through having faith in God. There are faiths which emphasize the value of subordinating yourself to the word, the word of God. But Judaism has this distinctive idea that we are partners with God. And so if you look around and you see a world which is not the world that we want to see, that our prophets have told us is a world of beautiful redemption, then the question God is asking to us is, well, what are you going to do about it? And if we're here a generation or two after 
the world, so much of the world did nothing about it, with the exception of remarkable righteous Gentiles who saved Jews. So what's our answer going to be today? Our answer needs to be that we need to be part of that solution. And we're told that we can, that there's political work to be done. And I see that there are people who are doing that work. And that's why I'm trying to be part of that work and calling for others to join us. So to follow up on that and to sum up a little bit, you know, um, last week we had a whole discussion about the, the state of Holocaust education um, in, uh, in in North America and elsewhere. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I was remarking about and that people had, you know, questioned my, my, my statement about was that if Holocaust education was working over the past, you know, however many decades, we wouldn't this would be an obvious issue for us and yet it's not meaning in the sense that we'd be saying never again never again never again and everybody would just right away know that in the event of a potential imminent genocide or anything like this we would be pushing back as a global community with great force to say we really believe this never again and yet we don't see that happening right there there's apathy and and I don't even have to talk about the larger global population or the north american population the jewish community um, has ha- has been apathetic about this cause, about other genocides in the past, about so many other times when we should be the ones, the first ones to be stepping up and saying never again. And it doesn't really happen. And, and as much as it should, because there are definitely Jews that are involved in these causes. Um, what do you say about that? And um, what do you think, you know, can, what can we do to, to maybe change that a little bit? Yeah, I, mean, I think it's an astute comment. I mean, uh, I don't make judgments on all those who have done the tremendously important Holocaust education work, but we always need to be asking, and especially at this time, um, you know, given the fact that we that there are so few Holocaust survivors with us now, um, you really how you know what? How do we remember? And you know, I, I gave it only one example through, through reference to you, know, you shall not oppress the stranger and so on, which comes out from our tradition. It's not the only lesson. Um, it's not the only distinctive Jewish way of of memorialising, but we need to think about what are we trying to achieve, and um, and I think that that needs to be one of the things, a major aspect of what we're trying to achieve is that we need to be a community that says never again and means never again, and that's what we stand for. I do think that what without doubt it's not just individuals. The British Jewish community has been outstanding on the Uyghur issue and has been recognised as such by the Uyghur groups. I've seen statements can't quote them verbatim, haven't seen them recently, from members of the Uyghur community and and, and people fighting that fight, saying, you know, everyone's been silent, but the Jewish community has been there. And that's why, in a way, it it inspires me so much and speaks so deeply to me. Um, But there are, of course, also groups in America, Jewish World Watch is one that I've worked with, but there's the Jewish movement for Uyghur freedom. Um, Natan Sharansky this week, uh, together with Elie Wiesel's son, signed on something in the New York Times, a big advert um, against the, 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 you know, the genocide games, or the call it, if that's what they called it, or the Olympic Games. So I, I think we see it significantly, but I think there's another way, which is why don't we see it enough? We might go back to David's question and say, do we see it enough in Montreal? It's certainly not only a Montreal thing, but but you know, is there something closer to home in terms of how we think about what we're trying to achieve? I mean, I say this as I've seen recently, um, I don't know if this was the discussion of your podcast, but um, you know, the number of Canadian school children who are not familiar with or don't fully take seriously the the historical account of the Holocaust. That was the discussion last right? week. So that we clearly, clearly we have things to be doing. But I think that we need to be asking the question, what are the Jewish ways of remembering? And the Jewish ways of remembering are not simply to make it about everyone else. We remember the six million Jews. We we, we owe it to them to remember them. We need we, we we owe it to those whose lives were extinguished 
this is these are members of our family this is not simply a universalist um mentality over here we, we, we start with the remembering of those of those people uh, from our family who were murdered and for the the holocaust that our people in, endured there are many different aspects of this but i think it's at our peril we, we 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 do it at our peril if we create a a um, hermetically sealed frame where everything is simply about jewish issues and we don't realize the moral importance of fighting against all those who have to endure genocide and persecution thank you anthony for coming on the show um and for being a dear friend of mine um for those of you who don't know there's there's a conflict there's no conflict of interest but uh anthony is uh, always available and uh, what did you say that anthony an accordance of interest an accordance of interest absolutely that is perfect a correlation <laughs> You can find links uh, to all of the action items uh, that Anthony has uh, uh, listed in the segment. Uh, In the show notes, you can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. Or you can, again, email Anthony uh, in the email that we'll put into the show notes uh, to ask him further um, for uh, any further uh, ideas or action points to be able to be made. Thank you again, Anthony. My pleasure. Our word of wisdom this week is a dialogue between Rabbi Aaron Levy of Macomb Creative Downtown Judaism in Toronto and Maxine Lee, an artist and student at the University of Toronto. They recently collaborated on a project for the Amen Institute, which spreads wisdom and Torah through art. To hear the full discussion and see the painting, visit the Amen Institute online or click on the link in the show notes. So first, to give a little bit of background about this week's parasha. It's set while the Israelites are still encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai, just months after the exodus from Egypt. Parashat Truma begins with God telling Moses, Moshe, Daber ben Israel, v'ikhu li truma, me'et kol ish asher yidvenu libo, t'ikhu et trumati. Speak to the children of Israel, that they take a contribution, a truma, for me. From every person whose heart is willing, you shall take my contribution. Then the Torah goes on to list the varied physical materials that will be solicited from the people. Um, and it explains the purpose for this whole voluntary collection. They shall make a holy place for me, and I will dwell among them. What's involved in making a mikdash, a holy place, or as it's called in the next verse, a mishkan, the dwelling place that brings God's presence among the Israelites? There are chapters and chapters of detailed descriptions about the large enclosure, which is like half the length and half the width of a Canadian football field, Um, And then the smaller actual tent-like structure in the middle of it, the Mishkan, the tabernacle. There are details for the indoor and outdoor furniture that comprise all this holy space. Uh, The Ark for the Ten Commandments, the menorah, the table, the incense altar, a larger altar for sacrifices, a large wash basin. So many details. Maxine, over to you. So the work that I created in response to my studies with Rabbi Aaron on this Parsha is a painting in acrylic on canvas that also has elements of um, fabric, you know, tool, cotton, wool, as well as um, glass, metal, and stone. Um, So central in the painting is a pillar of smoke, uh, the one, of course, that the Israelites have followed out into the desert. Around it are piles of donations and people coming voluntarily uh, to give their own possessions uh, to eventually become 
the Mishkan as well on the on the upper left of the painting uh, stitched into the sky are the words kol libo, um, every person uh, whose heart is moved and on the right at the bottom is the phrase kadet moshev israel which is um, a reference to the marriage ceremony the part that uh, draws the most attention is probably on the uh, lower left side there is a woman uh, whose back is turned to the viewer, but she is moving toward the pillar and the donations. Um, she is carrying a basket, um, and inside the basket is a mirror. Uh, she looks into the mirror back at the viewer, which I hope helps to um, bring us all into uh, the painting and into the text. So Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra, who is a 12th century rabbi and world traveler, he comments on one particular verse in this Torah portion, The Mishkan, the tabernacle, is called one, but it encompasses everything. He's stressing that despite the fact that the Mishkan is composed of so many different pieces, together they comprise the Mishkan, this one entity. It's not just a pile of parts. And then he continues more philosophically, saying, For every entity is not one thing, but is composed, of individual pieces. And in this manner, the honored God who is one contains everything and is called one. The same is true for the microcosm and the macrocosm. I think what Ibn Ezra is trying to teach us is that just as the Mishkan is made up of so many pieces that create one whole, so too God is one entity, even though God contains everything. This integrated unity also applies to us humans. We're the microcosm and to the whole universe, the macrocosm. You see this idea also in Kabbalah, medieval Jewish mysticism, where God is simultaneously transcendent beyond all physical reality and also imminent, present in this world. Uh, we learn from Rabbi Moshe Cordovero, a major 16th century Kabbalist, Ha'eloah konimtsa, God is everything that exists. So God pervades everything and everyone. We are all part of God. And if we go back to our parasha, the purpose of the Mishkan isn't literally to house God. Um, the Torah doesn't say that God will dwell in it, but rather betocham, among them, the Israelites. The Mishkan, the tabernacle, is designed by God, but then fashioned by humans to bring God consciousness into our people's midst and to therefore teach us about its divine architect. The Mishkan is a work of art. All art has the potential to achieve a parallel purpose to the Mishkan. It gives us insight into its artist. And although art can be an assemblage of canvas, paints, glass, stones, metals, and fabrics, like Maxine's beautiful work, it's still a unified work. It's called by a name. The construction of all these many pieces of the Mishkan demonstrates not only each individual person's unity as one human, but also the universe's unity and God's unity together with the whole universe. So how might such awareness of this pervasive unity whether it's inspired by the Mishkan or by contemporary art that we see, influence not only how we perceive, but more importantly, how we act toward ourselves, one another, the planet, and God. And now it's time for our Nachas of the Week, where we uh, look at things that are uh, making us feel good as Jews in the world today. 
David, what's your nachas? My nachas goes to Ryan Higgins. He is the owner of Comics Conspiracy in California, and he decided after the whole fiasco with the Tennessee school board and them banning the comic book mouse, he is now shipping free copies to anyone in the Tennessee district who asks for it. They will get their own copy of Mouse. Well, too bad we don't live in Tennessee. That's all I got to say. You don't have a copy of Mouse? Awesome. I'll send you a copy of Mouse Alana. <laughs> What's your nachos? So I have another book recommendation. I just finished No One Asked for This by Cassie David, who is Larry David's daughter. And she is super funny. She's around my age um, and talks about millennial angst from like a super dark, almost depressive, anxious Jewish um, young person's mind. Um, and it's a series of essays. She's a professional writer and journalist. So some of it is from work that she'd previously published and she talks about her life and she's very raw. Um, it's very wickedly funny and I recommend it if you are a millennial or know a millennial and you need to give a gift, um, or you just enjoy hearing about these types of things. Uh, I had a lot of fun reading it. How about you, Abby? I am going to uh, shout out Seth Rogovoy, who is uh, one of the great Jewish pop minds. Uh, he did a piece in the forward this week. Um, well, he compiled it all together. They asked a whole bunch of other Jewish uh, music critics um, for their uh, top Jewish pop songs. And they compiled together in the spirit of, you know, those uh, uh, Rolling Stone top 500, you know, songs of the past 50 years or all time or whatever it is, um, did the top 150 greatest Jewish pop songs of all time. It was a really fun read. It was curious to see what people's choices were. I mean, a lot of it is the, uh, what you would expect, a lot of Bob Dylan, a lot of Leonard Cohen, a lot of Lou, Lou Reed. But I mean, uh, Kinky Friedman shows up in the top five. Um, always always good to have some Kinky Friedman. Jill Sobiel shows up in there. Um, um, one of my favorites, which is, I don't even know how you call this a pop song because it's Captain Beefheart. And uh, he was like, you know, really quirky, uh, great artist in the 60s. Um, and he has a song called Dachau Blues. So, I mean, hey, wonderful pop song there. Um, but it was just a great read and I highly recommend go through it figure out which ones you like, which ones you don't, you know, are you, are you down on Matisyao these days? And so you don't want him in there or you think he deserves it because it's, he still wrote some great Jewish songs and, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, go check it out and, uh, let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending February 4th, Shabbat Tirumah. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. Three, two, one. The truckers, the truckers, dun 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 dun. The truckers. I got more. Do you want me to do yes. sing more? Yes. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> Who day and night must struggle for his freedom, earning life of living and pushing through the snow. And who day and night must command all his attention as he goes into each corner store. The truckers, the truckers, the libertarians, the libertarians, the snowflakes, the snowflakes, the snowflakes, the anti-Semites. Are you going to do a bottle dance? But nobody can see. I got my Perrier bottle here.
Oh, oh, oh.